May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We've made our way from the beginning now to the end. We come to the final few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You know, the way you end a letter really really has a a tendency to say a lot about what you've said in the letter, but also about the writer of the letter as well. had an aunt who was a uh, professor at Carson Newman, an English professor. And occasionally we would exchange correspondence back with one another. No, No emails, no texting, nothing of that nature. Taking the time to sit down with pen and paper and to write out a letter to one another. Being an English professor, she had such great ability as a wordsmith. And I was convinced that if it wasn't for the fact that she would simply run out of paper at some point, she would continue on within the letter, refreshing my heart and my soul and my spirit with what God was doing in her life and how she was praying for me. Another dear lady that I had the privilege of pastoring many years ago, Occasionally she'll send me a letter, something that she has seen that's reminded her of me, and she'll write that letter in a very feeble hand, reminding me of her prayers and checking on the family and and signing it, yours in Christ, Alice. We come to the end of Paul's letter. We usually conclude letters with something like what Paul does here. So-and-so says hi, or give so-and-so my greetings. Same thing that Paul does here. And he wraps up this letter with these concluding words. And within these words, he has these words of final greetings. There are family greetings, there are external greetings, there are internal greetings, and then finally there is a personal greeting from Paul himself. Look again at verse 15 and and look at the family greeting that Paul talks about here. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Paul uses three words in in this greeting related to the family of Stephanus. He begins first of of all by saying to them, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts. He uses the word conversion to describe the household of Stephanus. And the first thing that we know about them, the first thing that we discover about them in this letter is that that they were once in darkness, but now they are in light. They were converted people. There had been a change that had taken place within them. And in the ministry Paul had exercised within the city of Corinth, Stephanus was right at the front of the line, at the beginning of the queue, reminding Paul of what had taken place there. If you go back and look at Acts chapter 19, you read of Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. There while he was in the city of Corinth, we read what he did. There's a historical record that took place when Paul went into Corinth to preach. We read Acts chapter 18 verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That was his method. 
That was what he did. That was his mission. His mission is very simple. We want to persuade people to believe in Christ. That's the goal of it all. I I read lots, and and as I read related to leadership, related to business, related to church, we we find oftentimes people saying, you need a dynamic mission statement, you need to have a mission for what you're doing that you can translate to people and transfer to people. Friends, our mission is the same as it's always been within the church. That is that we want people to come to know Jesus Christ and grow to be like Him. It's that simple. We want to make disciples of people. We want them to know Jesus and grow to become like Him. Paul reasoned in the synagogue seeking to persuade Jews and Greeks doing everything within his power to make clear that Jesus Christ alone was the person that he claimed to be. He was the Savior and He was the Savior that these people desperately needed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's the ministry that Paul has been given. It's a ministry of persuasion. We seek to persuade others to come to faith in Christ. By the way, that's our mission as well. That's our ministry as well, to seek to persuade people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Can I urge you to be persuasive toward other people within your life? The beautiful thing that we have about Stephanus here is, in verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Can I urge you fathers, can I urge you mothers to begin within your own household? To be certain that you are doing everything that you can to persuade your children, to let them know the truth that Jesus is the Savior and He is the only one that can do anything with their souls, anything with with eternity, anything of transformational power, it will come through Jesus Christ alone. Would you make it your mission, parents, to be certain that your children come to know about Jesus Christ and pray that one day they would come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. God has placed you in this mission field that like the household of Stephanus, your household as well might become followers of Jesus Christ. That's what our persuasion should be. Our persuasion should be that they become like Jesus. Not that we should persuade them to be the best football players they can be. Not that we persuade them to be the best soccer players that they can be. Not that we persuade them to be the the best academicians that they can be. But that we persuade them to be followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And in the midst of all of this persuading, we read of something that happened in Acts chapter 18 verse 8. We read there that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Right there in that statement, you find Stephanus. Stephanus and his family His entire household coming to faith in Jesus Christ, converted by the glorious gospel, being persuaded through one of God's servants that they needed Jesus. Can we give the message? Can we be persuasive with the people around us that they might hear from us that Jesus saves? 
He goes on to describe this family and this this family greeting as a family that was devoted. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Look at verse 15. They've devoted themselves. See, here was a family who knew that conversion is not the end, but it's merely a starting point. Conversion is not the end, it is merely a starting point. Paul, we read, stayed in Corinth for 18 months, providing them with the information that they needed to go on with Christ. And here is this family who understood that now that they had been converted, it was not an option for them to be devoted. It was not, we'll take the conversion, but perhaps not the devotion. No, the two went together. It was expected, and they would be devoted. But notice how their devotion plays itself out. They have devoted themselves, what? To the service of the saints. See, that's the way devotion always is. Devotion reveals itself in doing And here the devotion revealed itself in service to the saints. You can only know devotion in relation to the doing that accompanies the devotion. Here they are devoting themselves to the service of the saints, to serving others. And I wonder what is there about your Christian life, about my Christian life, that speaks of devotion to our fellow believers. It's interesting, this word devotion is very literally the word addiction. They have addicted themselves to the service of the saints. We're familiar with addiction. We we know some of the devastating consequences of of addiction in a person's life. But here it has a very wonderful outcome. They were addicted to the service of the saints. Why? Because they were first converted, changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they stepped out in devotion and service to others. A habitual activity. An idea of, I have to have it. I have to do this. They weren't workaholics just working for the sake of work. No, they were devoted to ministry and to the service of the saints for the sake of love to one another. Would your family be known as a family that is converted? Would your family be a family that's known as a family being devoted to the ministry and the service of the saints? And finally, we read that their family was recognized by inspiration. We read on down in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Wow. You know, we we have an idea when we read of these people in Scripture, when we read of Paul, this, this massive giant of the faith. We, we read of, of David, we read of Noah, we read of Moses, and we have a tendency to put them upon such a high pedestal that we forget that they are humans marred by sin, just as we are, and we think, I'll never attain to that. But here you have Paul, arguably the greatest missionary who ever walked the face of this planet. And yet here he comes and he says, they refreshed my spirit. Does that give us an idea of the importance of companionship in life? Of not going through life alone, 
Paul is here longing. He says in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. I rejoice at the fact that they're coming. Paul is longing for the companionship of his friends. Why? Because they refresh my spirit. The very opposite of a drain. Paul says they've brought refreshment to me and they bring refreshment to me. There's an idea of togetherness, an idea of closeness, an idea of interconnectedness with one another. Paul understood that clearly. You can never, ever, ever do life on your own. You can't do it. Paul says, I'm glad they're coming because they refresh my spirit. Do you have people like that in your life that just refresh you? When you're with them, you feel encouraged. When you're with them, you you feel better. When you are with them, you, you feel like you've had a cool drink of water on a hot day. We have people like that. But I think the opposite of that question is much more important. Are you like that to someone else? Are you that refreshment to someone else? When someone sees you coming, do they rejoice because my friend is coming, the one who refreshes me? We're together again and we can draw this strength from one another. Is that you? They've refreshed my spirit as well as yours. There's the family greetings that Paul talks about there in the household of Stephanus, the converted household, the devoted household, the inspiring household. Can we not see in them an example of what we need in our lives as well? That today, if you are not converted, you might trust in Jesus Christ. And that as a result of trusting in Him, you might be devoted, you might become addicted to the service of the saints on His behalf. You might be inspiring, encouraging to others. Paul moves from there to some external greetings. Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, or Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. The external greetings are threefold. Paul talks about the churches of Asia that send their greetings. Now to us, this is not a big deal. It's like, okay, great, let's just go on. What's the point? The churches of Asia send you their greetings. It doesn't sound very important to us, but remember this. Until Paul had walked into the province of Asia, there were no churches in Asia. There were no churches to send their greetings to the church at Corinth. In fact, if you go back again to Acts, this time in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, you read that this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul comes in and there's no gospel witness to the work of Jesus Christ. There's no one proclaiming that Jesus is Savior. There are no churches in Asia. When you go down to verse 26, there is a a riot that breaks out in Ephesus and, and you discover there Paul has convinced many people within the region. In Acts 19, 26 we read, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not. God's. Almost all of Asia. What 
an amazing statement that is. What a wonderful thing that is. The churches of Asia send you their greetings. Those who had at some time earlier had lived in paganism, in confusion, without God, without hope. They had been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and now they were part of the family. Friends, listen, this does not say much about the power and strength of Paul, but it says a great deal about the power and the strength of the message of the gospel. Where there had been no churches, God redeems people, and now there are churches, and together they send their greetings to Corinth. Let them know we're thinking about them. Let them know we're praying about them. It helps to broaden our perspective when we think of this. It helps to expand our horizon to realize that we are part of something far bigger than us. We're part of something much grander than just Boone Trail Baptist Church. That's why it's so wonderful to hear from churches in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, in Spain, in Texas, in Denver, where our partnerships are, deepening our sense of relationship and reminding us of what it means to be a part of the family of God churches of Asia send you greetings. Do you see the power of the gospel? You see the power of the gospel to infiltrate and to move among a people until people come to faith in Christ and churches are established. People coming to know the Redeemer and being transformed by Him. Churches of Asia send you greetings. He says also in verse 20, greetings from all the brothers as well. All the brothers send you greetings. Companions of Paul, not exactly sure who they were. Perhaps the Corinthians knew who they would be by interaction with Paul and those that were traveling back and forth. But another reminder simply of the fact that Paul was not alone. And if Paul cannot be alone... Why do you think you can do this alone? Why do I think I can do this alone? I can't. You can't. And then finally he comes to this external greeting from this, this wonderful couple, Aquila and, and Prissa, as she's called here in the letter to the Corinthians. Priscilla, as we know uh, her name. Quill and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Again, we're introduced to them in Acts chapter 18. Paul is introduced to them there as well. They had moved to Corinth, uh, being a resident of Italy, because the ruler, Claudius, had expelled the Jews from Rome. And so here Aquila and Priscilla make their way to Corinth, probably wondering from time to time, why in the world are we at this place? We know what a, a, a lot of what was going on in the city of Corinth, the paganism, the idolatry, the debauchery, and just such a, a vile city. Perhaps they were wondering, why are we here? And then they heard about this Jewish evangelist that showed up in town sharing that he was a tent maker by trade, introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, also tent makers by trade. And so in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to see them and they make their home available to him and they work together. And God used this couple in the lives of so very many people. In fact, when, when you read in Acts chapter 18, you find a man by the name of Apollos there. 
who was teaching the truth, but it was a limited amount of truth. And so Aquila and Priscilla opened their home to him as well. And they begin to teach uh, Apollos from the Scripture who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, expanding upon his knowledge of God's Word. And then what happens, Apollos becomes one of the, the lead teachers within the church at Corinth. See, Paul, Apollos were welcomed into their home and they taught to Apollos the Word of God and and he in turn teaches it to the Corinthians. And here you have families opening their hearts, opening their homes. What a tremendous means of encouragement this is. Why do you think that Aquila and Priscilla come out in all of these otherwise very general greetings? I can't help but think that it is the case because of the dramatic impact that they made upon the life of Paul, upon the life of Apollos, and so many others that they impacted. You see, this is why why we continue to encourage you. You need to be part of one of our small groups where you, you begin to plug in with others relationally, where you get to know one another, even even starting home groups so that you are in one another's homes and you get to know each other on a deeper, more relational level that you might come to know God in a deeper way as well. Be involved in one of those home groups. Be involved in one of those small groups. Uh, Unite together in prayer groups around uh, this this church. Get Get involved in discipleship relationships with one another. The external greetings that are here. The churches of Asia, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, all the brothers... And then Paul gives us some internal greeting as well. At the end of verse 20, he tells us this, how we are to treat one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, a kiss was the the common manner in in which friends would greet one another. It's very customary. You can think of it almost in European terms when you see this happen. Those of European descent will often do this. They they will come to embrace one another, and, and typically on both sides of the cheek, they will touch cheeks and kiss, not really kissing each other as much as kind of kissing the air. It's we're not talking about a mainline smooch here. We're just talking about a little peck going on here. Uh, And you see this all throughout the Bible. It would be very much like our handshake today, very much like a hug that we would extend to one another. It was a customary greeting in this culture. In the Old Testament, Jacob brought food to his father Isaac, and they exchanged a kiss of greeting. Later, Esau embraced and kissed Jacob, his brother. You have David and Jonathan, best of friends, that exchange the greeting of a kiss with one another. Even in Luke chapter 15, you have the story of the prodigal son, that when the father sees him, he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. It's the customary kind of greeting. We're not accustomed to this kind of greeting today, but we still have greetings of proximity to show that we're in relationship with one another. A handshake, a hug, something of that nature. You see lots of times, my daughter's been a cheerleader, I've gone to the basketball games, and I've seen some of these students that have done their very fancy handshakes with one another, and they slap and they flip and they twist and all of this stuff that they do, and it's a way of showing and promoting kinship. We belong to one another. We're on the same team with one another. Maybe that's what we should do. We should come up with a secret handshake or something. The Boone Trail handshake. Find somebody coordinated enough to do it. That'll be great. Not me. 
You see, you take the customary, but you make it different. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's nothing different about the greeting itself. It was customary in that way to greet one another with a kiss when you would see one another. The difference was in the people extending the greeting. The difference was in those that were giving the greeting. It became a holy kiss because the people extending it were holy people. Paul says in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, coming back full circle, he says you are saints, set apart, separated to God, separated from sin. You are sanctified. That's who you are. And that's what makes the kiss a holy kiss. But you see, for us as a church, there there should be an obvious sign of affection among the people of God. We're not a country club. We're not an academic club. We're not a club designed around physical activity like soccer or track or football or basketball or baseball or softball. We're the church. And in that, we have fellowship with one another. It's kind of like Louis Armstrong in in that song. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You see, that's that's what should be thought when we come in together with God's people and we greet one another with a holy handshake, a holy hug, something of that nature. What a wonderful world this is and the relationship in which we live with one another. Are you part of that relationship? Are you part of that fellowship? If you're not a part of Christ, you're not a part of it. It's not going to be holy if you're not holy. And by holy, I mean set apart for God, saints, those redeemed by the work of Jesus. Then finally, Paul gives some personal greetings. Look at what he says in verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. (laughs) That kind of excites me a little bit. I I imagine that I would probably be the kind of person that uh, as as this was being read within the church and we came to this, uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. I I probably would have been the one who said, ooh, I want to see. (laughs) How does Paul write? We have an idea that Paul had a vision problem of some sort. He writes to one of the other churches, see what big letters I use. Are they really that big? Does he at times use smaller letters? Is he a neat writer? Is he a messy writer? What can we glean about Paul from the way that he writes? Should he be a doctor in training because we can't understand any of the scribble that's there? I want to see it. How do you feel about form letters that you get in the mail? Don't you love those, those form letters that you get in the mail? They, they've gotten really clever recently. They, they, they will use different colored ink to make it look like someone has handwritten this on the envelope. And then you get inside and, and, and they want to make it look like we've, we've taken the time to sit down and write this letter. And you know it's not the case. There's a computer somewhere that's taking a name and putting it on the letter and mass producing this and sending it out. I hate those letters. One of the main reasons I hate them is because usually they're always asking me for money of some sort. But don't you love to get a letter that looks like it was written just to you? 
Hey, somebody's taking the time to sit down and write this out. Now, as I say, Paul probably had reasons that he couldn't have written the whole letter, and so there's indication that he would, he would dictate this letter to someone who would write it down, and then customarily Paul would conclude the letter with his own handwriting. It's Paul's way of saying, I want you to know this is coming from me. This is really what I want you to know and understand. And he had brought uh, greetings from over there in Asia. He had brought greetings from the brothers. He had brought greetings from Aquila and Priscilla. And he encouraged greetings to one another. And then he finishes it all personally. He gives a word of warning. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This is Paul in his own hand, writing all of this, with all of the warnings that have gone on previously in 1 Corinthians, he says a final warning. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. It's not a reference to the unbeliever. It's not a reference to the agnostic. It's a warning against religious hypocrisy. Paul's been writing all along to some people in Corinth who said they had life in Christ, but their lifestyle never matched it. Their lifestyle never showed it. See, friends, listen, don't make the mistake of saying that you're a Christian if your lifestyle doesn't give evidence of the fact that you are a Christian. Then he comes on with a word of waiting. Our Lord, come. It's one word. It's an Aramaic word, Maranatha, talking about the coming of Jesus. Do you know that one in 25 verses in the New Testament references the coming, the return of Jesus? It's a great juxtaposition here between the two. Here is a word of warning. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. I give you this warning because remember, we're waiting on Jesus. He might come at any point. Don't you want him to find you watching, waiting, working for his glory? And then he gives a word of blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Here Paul ends the same way he began. We read it just a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 1.3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace. No other word in all of Christian terminology that more adequately, that more fully expresses what God has done for us and what God will do in us through Jesus Christ. It's grace at the beginning. It's grace in the middle. It's grace at the end. Grace that is greater than all my sin. That's what it is. The reason we're able to work, the reason we're able to watch, the reason we're able to wait is because of the grace of God given to us in Jesus. And then he concludes with the word of great love. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. <laughs> all. And we've gone through 1 Corinthians and We've, we, we've met some pretty wretched people, haven't we? I mean, we? We've met some people that were involved in some pretty heinous sins. 
man having an affair with his stepmother, people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper meal, Christians suing other Christians. Wow. And yet Paul says, my love be with you all. The ones that have bugged me, the ones that have disappointed me, the ones who have encouraged me, the ones who have blessed me, the ones who have refreshed my spirit, those who were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, those who are suing one another, I love you. That's why Paul gives the words of warning that he does. Because he loves them. And he ends here with such a tender note. By the way, he ends with what I think was probably Paul's favorite phrase. We read it consistently throughout his writings. In Christ Jesus. See, that was the wonder of it all for Paul. To be in Jesus. Can can I, out of love, give you a great warning today? You are either in Christ or you're not. There's no in-between. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. There is no in-between. And Paul ends with Jesus, just like he should. Because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And today, I end as I began, calling on those who have not trusted in Christ to trust Him today. That you who are not in Christ, trust in Jesus so that you will be in Christ. Because Jesus might come at any moment. Because death might visit you at any second. And if you are not found in Christ, you will be found eternally separated from Him. I call on you today. And I urge you, if you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted in Him for salvation, that today would be the day that you do. Forgiveness is available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Your sin has been taken by Him and you can receive forgiveness. And I call on those of us who have believed to committed faithful service devoting ourselves to the service of the saints. Father, we we, we bring to a conclusion our formal study in this portion of Your Word that we know as 1 Corinthians. We we conclude this in our formal time of gathering together to seek understanding of it. But Father, I thank You that there is no conclusion to the power of Your Word in a person's heart and life. And so my prayer today is, would You please take what we have discovered today, 
Take what we have discovered in months past. Take what we will discover in months ahead from Your Word. And use it for Your purpose. You you have guaranteed and promised that Your Word will not return void, but it will accomplish Your purposes. And so for that we take great encouragement and joy. And Father, I pray for our hearts today. Someone who does not yet know Jesus Christ, would You speak conviction to them, Father? Father, would You encourage them to trust in Jesus today? For us who know Him, would You remind us as well of the call to service that You've placed upon our lives. That we would be devoted to the service of the saints for Your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.